Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. I'm curious, how many were here last month when it was Will Wright and Brian Eno? Um, you might be interested in some follow-up on that. As Brian described the evening, it was uh, two people becoming friends in front of 900 people. Uh, they had just met before the talk and were basically engaging at many levels simultaneously. So many that it appears that uh, they will be doing generative work together. That is, uh, Brian uh, is shaping up toward doing basically background sounds and music and stuff for the game Spore that Will Wright is designing. And unlike all previous games, it looks like that will be music that self-generates and that you as the player will engage in shaping. And so instead of listening to the same loop over and over again when you're in some part of the game, it will never repeat. Uh, the generative play is in play. Um, next month will be September. As we can see from this audience, summer is kind of slow. And the speaker then uh, will be Bill McDonough with not his usual green architecture, cradle to cradle, recycle everything um, talk, good as it is, but will be about the greening of China. It turns out that Bill has been involved at a high level with the Chinese government for many years. He's in the process of designing six new uh, radically green cities there. Uh, and the leadership is talking about developing what they call a circular economy. In other words, the world's most polluted country uh, may be bouncing off of that situation uh, toward becoming a real uh, green leader. And that will be the news he'll be bringing. There's been questions about questions. <laughs> uh, all of you have these, I think. And because we're shooting this in video and in audio, we go with written questions. And the approach on that is uh, might be good to let Rendon talk a little while so that you're responding to what he's saying. Um, but I know a lot of people that have questions going in and we'll also deal with those. My approach with the questions will be to probably deal with the talk relevant ones first and then get to Iraq and other things that I know people want to engage. Um, the way to get the questions up to Kevin Kelly and me in the front is there's volunteers with yellow hats around. And when uh, you've got a question written out, just hold it up and volunteer will come find you or you can pass it down the aisle to one of them. And um, those questions can come at any time uh, during Q&A. We'll probably go for half an hour or so at least for Q&A. And that should be interesting. It might help to give a little background why and how John Rendon is here tonight. Um, turns out that five of the Long Now board members have worked with John Rendon in the past at one meeting or another. Um, Danny Hillis, Peter Schwartz, Paul Sappho, me, and we just uh, got reminded Kevin Kelly. John remembered Kevin in a DARPA session that we were doing on the future of science, and uh, Kevin had forgotten it. The thing that all of us have found is if there's some kind of workshop or meeting and John Rendon is there, uh, the workshop will go better. Um, he has, doesn't say much, but when he speaks up, he has extremely useful, interesting stuff to say. And when you're working in government, 
meetings and workshops, you always wonder if it's going to connect anything in the real world because there's a lot of gears that don't connect in government. And when John is there, you know that the gears are connecting because he is engaged. And um, I don't know what he's going to say tonight, uh, which is part of the pleasure for me, because usually with our speakers, I sort of know. Uh, but in this case, it's the man and his experience that we're bringing. And his interest in something that Long Now is interested in. Uh, I've talked to three people about... how the political process needs to engage an important role of governance, which is long-term responsibility, in a better way. That seems to have gotten out of whack somehow. And um, Madeline Albright has said she'd like to give a talk on that subject, and Al Gore has said that he'd like to give a talk on that subject in this sequence. When I raised the subject with John Rendon last week at a workshop we were at in Berkeley on the future of Latin America, he said he would like to talk on the subject. So please welcome John Rendon. Thanks, Stuart. Um, good evening. Uh, it's important for uh, full disclosure uh, that I share some observations. First off, these, these will be my personal observations. They don't represent the government of the United States, other governments, planets, solar systems. Um, also, a thousand years ago, when I was 12, uh, I served as executive director and political director of the Democratic Party. I was director of scheduling in advance for President Carter, and from time to time served as an analyst for BBC World Television a small global audience of 365 million people every day, which in a global information environment means that they reach more people in one broadcast than all the U.S. networks combined. In fact, in the United States, they have a larger audience than Fox and MSNBC, which is two of our premier panic channels. Um, a little humor is okay in the summer. Um, I want to thank uh, Stuart for uh, inviting me. Uh, I've known Stuart for a few years. He's a brilliant, insightful soul and probably the first mythic poet I've ever met. Um, but I, I was really sort of intrigued and not baffled, but moderately depressed by the, one of his emails either this afternoon or yesterday when you said I'd come out from behind the curtain. Um, and I don't know, 25, 26 years ago when I was the President Carter's convention manager in New York, uh, ABC did that piece about Oz and the person behind the curtain. So I'm thinking quarter century later, I'm back doing the same thing. <laughs> it's really a thousand years ago. I wanted to um, talk about a couple things. Um, and Stuart touched on this. I am increasingly concerned about the polarized nature of the nation. And I think it's harmful to the country because people who hold views very passionately, and passion is a good thing, um, get attacked viciously by people on the other side. And as some people mentioned to me this morning, there's no voice in the moderate middle. And what I wanted to do was just to share some observations about the war on terrorism. Um, and, and most importantly, against those observations, um, talk to you a little bit about the length of the, and the nature of the conflict um, and why I'm really happy and honored to be here 
because I think you may be the only group or continuing conversation that's taking the long view to everything or to anything. Uh, bless you. The uh, increasingly in Washington, um, everybody is consumed with today's news cycle. The tyranny of real time, as Nick Gowing, who is the principal presenter on BBC, describes it. And nobody has taken any time to think about time in a long view. And so I'd like to share those my observations against that backdrop. Um, I started with the notion that 1756 days ago, there was an attack in and at the United States. Um, and as I began to think about that, it also occurred to me that 22,163 days ago in this very room, the United Nations started. And if we look back over that period of time and begin to think about things in a longer context, we begin to see things a little bit differently. At the start of the war, the information objectives of the U.S. military uh, were really four, to create and maintain a coalition, to counter, deter, and defeat the enemy, and the enemy would change over time, to support the warfighter. If brave men and women are going to go in harm's way, they deserve support. Seven days a week, 365 days a year, not nine to five Eastern Standard Time to counter, deter, and degrade the enlistment of potential terrorists. So let me talk a little bit about each one of these um, in a little bit more detail. I think if you're being honest with yourselves uh, and you ask yourself if this is really a global war on terrorism or America's war on terrorism, you would tell yourself that it's America's war on terrorism. And yet, in open source reporting alone, since September 12, 2001, over 76 countries have conducted unilateral operations against terrorist targets or provided support to other countries that were doing that. And these are countries that were saying so on their own. Now, admittedly in that, some of it is round up the usual suspects. Some of it is domestic political considerations. But there is enough that is going on in different places, and many countries are participating. So what does that mean? That means that probably the, one of the largest strategic conundrums of the war is that the difference between perception and reality is divergent. The perception is that it's America's war on terrorism, and there is enough comment that it's really a global coalition working in different places at different times. Coalitions are, as people in the government would say, a center of gravity. The relationship between the United States and other countries is vital. Against that backdrop, the U.S. government has a huge credibility deficit when it messages overseas and has so for a number of years. We must find ways not just to engage the governments of other countries, but it's important and in our vital interest that we engage the people of other nations. Counter, deter, and defeat the enemy, and the enemy will change over time. We learned early on, because of the credibility deficit of the government, to talk about bin Laden and Mullah Omar meant we actually increased their value. So the debate shifted a little bit from people to their organizations, because we could tell the truth. And in that truth is what al-Qaeda sought to do, was to turn different countries into the next Taliban state. That dynamic has shifted once again. It's now important to talk about the tactics they use and not necessarily the people 
who use them. After all, who could support someone that puts a bomb on a school bus and kills children? Who could support, and this actually uh, is a real issue in Iraq now, who, who could support someone who stops a busload of people and checks their IDs and then selectively executes people because of their name? And then, as we begin to think about this, we need to think about the multiverse and not just the universe. What we do is we tend to look at things just from our eyes and not from others. And this drives together with the coalition, drives together the importance of other countries and other cultures and the values that they, they bring to the fight. Now, in terms of what's going on now, I'll share these observations. First, I think we're fighting two wars where we should be. One is we're fighting a war that's comprised of real terrorists coming at us and at coalition partners, whether it's London, Madrid, Casablanca, Amman. Names, faces, places, locations, some of which we know and some of which we don't. That war is being fought largely by the military and the intelligence community. And it's being fought tens of thousands of miles away from here and sometimes close to the border or even just inside the border with law enforcement agencies. And that part of the war, quite candidly, is going fairly well. A lot's been stopped, sometimes in the middle of the night. But it's going fairly well. The second war is the war of potential terrorists, some of whom are alive and some of whom are not yet born. And that's the war I can actually lose sleep over. Colleagues of mine who are media analysts and native language speakers from the region remind me that in this war, it's really not a war of potential terrorists. It's a war of potential allies. And these allies are individuals and they're citizens. And here's the reason they say that. If you remember my comment earlier about the credibility deficit when the U.S. government messages overseas, then think about this. We say that it's not a war against Islam, and we run the risk that 1.2 billion people hear that it is. If 1% of them are violent extreme actors bent on attacking and destroying the United States of America and coalition partners, that's 12 million people. If they come with support networks of 2 to 3%, that's 48 million people. Now, no government in the United States, regardless of political party or ideology, is going to authorize the construction of a combat operations plan that goes after 48 million people one by one. That means that if we don't think long and think long sooner rather than later, we will be in a situation where we will be fighting to fight and not necessarily fighting to win. So what does that mean? That means in reality, the threat comes not from the 12 million people, the 1%, the threat comes from the rest if we don't get them engaged in the nature of this conflict. What we need to do is to, and I'll borrow from Tom Friedman on this, we need to turn the street into an active ally and away from being a passive observer. What we really need, and this is to think long again, is we need the parents in the countries to believe, because it is true, that the American people care more about their children and their children's children than the governments of the countries in which they live. 
If we don't start thinking about the people in these countries, we're going to miss an enormous opportunity. Against that, we have some choices and challenges. First, we remain a peacetime government while the military and others are at war. Second, we are an industrial age structure and an information age environment. And that hasn't changed. Third, we have tactical opportunities that pr produce strategic threats. This is the temporal conundrum problem. That right now, there are actions being conducted in a number of places that meet a requirement at a tactical or local level now that could very well create a strategic problem in the longer run. And then, I think the single biggest threat in the nature of the war is that the United States unplugs from the rest of the world and disconnects. I know after a recent debate in Congress, which was very vitriolic, I, I had the opportunity to call an old friend of mine who um, was a former member of Congress, and I told him that I was afraid that the xenophobes were overrepresented in the Congress. And this guy with a good southern drawl said, Rendon, you just might be wrong. There are a lot of them here. So what does that mean about the nature of the conflict now? Um, early in the war, and I will go back now to December 2001 and all of 2002, we conducted a number of focus groups globally. We conducted them because we weren't sure if the war was going to break out, where else it was going to go. So we used marketing techniques, focus groups, as I just mentioned, specifically with the point of trying to find out what people were saying, because we thought if the war was going to break out, it would manifest itself in the rhetoric of young people first. So we did gender divided age splits on youth, 16 to 20, 21 to 25. So here are the top lines of that. Young Muslims said to us, you look at us, but do not see us. You talk to us, but do not listen. You believe in democracy inside your borders, but not outside. And you lead in creation and innovation, but you do not share. And I look at that research probably once a quarter, and I ask myself, how much has changed? And those views remain the same across different countries and across different regions. Ironically, to me, the first several of those points are virtually identical to research that we saw in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and in the early 70s, I worked on phase two desegregation in Boston. Uh, and this look at us, but do not see us and talk to us, but do not listen was virtually identical to what we were seeing across Boston and what we saw in the civil rights movement across the South. The second set of research that we took a look at um, really asked the question about the United States. Do you support the United States or not? Do you like the United States or not? The most interesting question of that was, what is the United States to you? And this is where degrees of separation became very important. If the respondent to these surveys had studied in the United States or worked in the United States or had an immediate family member that did so, their definition of the United States was the American people. And at that point, it was a high positive and a low negative. So you would think 80-something to teens. If they were two and three degrees of separation out from that respondent, they defined U.S. policy 
as American businesses in the global marketplace, McDonald's, Burger King, Nike, Reebok. And that was in the negative, probably low 50s, uh, medium 40s. And if they were four and five degrees of separation out from that, their definition of the United States was the U.S. government. And that was a very high negative to a very low positive. In fact, it was inverted. If you thought about people who respondents who defined the United States as the American people versus respondents who didn't know the American people and defined it as U.S. policy, those numbers were virtually identical, but inverted. So a recent poll that Pew did uh, pointed out some very interesting numbers that in a number of countries, popularity or support of the United States um, continues to decline over time, but there remains huge separation in numbers between a definition of the United States as the American people and a definition of the United States as U.S. policy. Therein lies a key in the long war. In reality, what the United States really needs is the strength and the credibility of the American people to increase the strength and the credibility of its government. So what about solutions? Talk a little bit about networking strategy. And I'm going to do this from the same three places that I just described in the early polling numbers. Talk a little bit about the government, a little bit about the private sector, and then a little bit about the American people. First, I think the future is about convergence. Those of you that are in technology would all see that, and a lot of the conversation is about platforms on convergence. But I think it's about convergence, not just in communications, but also in relationships. So what should the United States government do to shorten the long war? First, we need to use soft power to recover the credibility of the government. Um, and it's not about spin. It's really about substance. Remember a friend of mine describing a conversation with President Clinton in Russia um, on a trip that he went over there, and the president was troubled. And for those of you that know President Clinton, you know what troubled means. And he was expressing himself, and those of you that know President Clinton knows what that means. And he, he was uh, outraged that the news media would not give him credit for the things that he was doing. And one of these senior aides turned to him and said, Mr. President, Bad facts do not make for good spin. We need to use soft power, as Joe Nye describes it, to increase the credibility of the government. But what about issues we share in common with different populations? I think one of the success stories that hasn't been told as much as it should have in the wake of the wall coming down and the transformation uh, in the post-communist environment is how much of a role the National Endowment for Democracy has played in giving people an opportunity of empowerment and an ability to express themselves and to help with the formation and the creation of governments. With that as a backdrop, I would encourage you to think about the creation of a global endowment for education. It's important that every child on the planet has access to education. I would ask you also to think about a global endowment for health care. This is really about prenatal health care. This is about immunization. This is about stopping diseases that break out in these places and places that people don't pronounce and haven't been to. Also, getting the visa issue right is vital in our interest. 
I have colleagues of mine that have told me stories about what it's like. So I'm going to share one of those with you now. In some of our embassies, people spend the equivalent of one month's salary for the privilege of scheduling an appointment to stand in line for four or five hours, regardless of the weather, to go in and it's a crapshoot and they bring their children with them to find out whether or not they can get a visa to come to the United States to visit. And invariably, depending upon how they're treated or what the process is like, some of these parents come out and they're actually crying from the experience they've just gone through. And that's hard enough if you think about somebody who wants to come to the United States just as a visitor. This isn't a, a work permit. And this colleague of mine reminded me that it's not just about the parents, it's about the children of the parents who've just watched their parents be treated that way. And here, not far away, I mean, in Silicon Valley, the whole emergence of the Silicon Valley phenomenon had a lot to do with people who came from other countries, who shared their insights, their observations, learned and then worked and helped make it productive. Visas are vital. Connectivity is essential. Whether it's the $100 laptops at the Media Lab, we have to find ways to get people connected through technology, through experiences, shared commonality. All of that becomes essential. For those of you that are active in alumni programs with your respective universities or schools, alumni programs with international students are essential. The government also has to do, I think, a better job of engaging publics at home and abroad. Dialogue is helpful. Debate is essential. In fact, it's vital to our national interest. After all, how can we tell people that it's important to come up and have a democracy in a country if the debate here isn't permitted at home? Then also, I think universal service, which started under the Clinton administration, is also important to keep in mind. And this, I think a little bit about the Peace Corps, and I think about the experience in the tsunami I think now is a year and a half, two, almost two years ago. Um, I got one of the first alerts uh, in an activity that, that we maintain about open source information about the earthquake. Um, and then uh, in conversation shortly thereafter by email with commander, military commanders in the Pacific uh, and at other commands about the fact that an 8.9 earthquake was going to have havoc, which was what the first uh, news report was. Um, and that providing uh, humanitarian assistance was essential. We watched with interest over a period of time about how support for the United States shifted um, in Indonesia. That over, I guess the good news, as I told people later on, is that over 35 days, support levels for the United States moved 56 points. That was the good news. The bad news was that over 35 days, support levels for the United States moved 56 points that if you move that many points in that short a period of time, they can move back. And if there is not something that comes in behind humanitarian assistance that has enduring value on the ground, can actually lose the nature of the support that was developed. And now in Indonesia, the support levels for the United States, as of last month in Pew, was at 37%. And then also to peg off of uh, what Joe and I talks in soft power is that there's also a balance of smart power, which is a new characterization, which is using both the combination of strong um, or hard power and soft power and applying it selectively. 
And then as I think about the government and I watch everything that's transpired over four years and I see frustration, not just in citizens, but also in people, commanders uh, and soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marines, um, I'm going I'm becoming increasingly convinced that the best role for the United States government is to be the enabler and not the actor. The private sector. This is about connectivity again. This is about connectivity in technology, connectivity in education, connectivity in healthcare. American businesses that operate in the global market space that form part of the definition of what the United States is in an increasingly connected world have increasingly responsible, increasing responsibilities, not just to their shareholders, but also to the citizens of the United States and equally important, if not more important, the citizens of the countries in which they do business. They've really got to take a look at it and they've got to engage at a much greater level. Uh, about a week ago, I was in Germany for a meeting and I was talking to somebody and she had virtually perfect English. And I said to this person, well, where did you learn your English and fully expected it to be an English program in her school? And she said when she was growing up and going to high school, um, Volkswagen, which was just coming into the United States at the time, so it gives you an age of the idea of the person because we could actually talk about the Beetle. <laughs> Um, and she said Volkswagen paid for her entire high school class to study in the United States for one year and paid for U.S. students to go study in Germany for one year. And I thought that was a tremendous program. And then I wonder about U.S. businesses that are operating out there now, whether they would consider doing something similar um, or helping wire schools in places in which they work. And then finally, and most importantly, the American people. What can they do? Senator Kennedy's done a good job in the United States Senate of establishing the importance of building bridges. But bridges go both ways. They're two way streets. Um, and this ties back a little bit to the United States government um, and what it can do. But if you think about the world and think about the world in a global context and the different countries and cultures, and I'm fortunate to work in 91 of them. The reality is that we have much to learn from each other. This isn't about bringing people over from other countries and asking them to learn how we do things so that they can do things better, we have to learn from them as well. And so in that, I can also think about the importance of education. And uh, this is sort of my magic wand solution. Uh, I asked colleagues from time to time if they could do one thing, what is it that they would do that would make a difference? And my answer to that question, because I'm not immune, is that I would make the third year of high school in the United States mandatory overseas, and I don't care what direction the students go. If we lose touch with the rest of the world, then we'll see the rest of the world as a threat, not as an opportunity. And the diversity of this nation is what produces the strength and the character of the American people. Along with that, we can do a lot with health care. This is about building partnerships. So I like the concept of the bridges that, that uh, Senator Kennedy talked about. But healthcare and communities across America should be related to healthcare and communities across the Middle East, related to communities across Asia. We should be able to use the technology that has made such a big difference in everybody's lives, certainly in this room, but across the country, an ability to build a bridge on education, an ability to build a bridge on healthcare. 
And then also on communications, and I, I would say this to the news media uh, across the United States, you're not absent from this either. Um, I, I think that newspapers in the United States could do a lot worse than trading one position and partnering out um, with a news organization in the Middle East. I would think, for example, in my own state of Massachusetts, the Boston Globe could send one journalist to work for Al-Hayat and take one journalist from Al-Hayat to the Boston Globe for a year. I think that helps. This is about understanding each other. It's not about being right. And then finally, I think we, we, we have to think about how jobs, how economics works in a number of these countries and a number of these cultures and give people access to that very innovation that they see in the United States, that they admire and that they respect and that they think we keep away from them. So finally, before I get to the 4,312 questions that you've obviously collected, um, let me just address the future a little bit. I think the future, other than my comment about the final frontier in San Francisco and the Starship Enterprise, I would tell you that I think that the, the final frontier is really about networks and narratives, desperately in search of an alliteration, he said. The networks are all about linked people, organizations, the scalability, social networks, not just hardwired networks. I think we really do have to find a way to have people communicate communicate across boundaries and boundaries um, and borders. I think the old the, the old definition of borders no longer works. And I think also that this multiverse, each of you has a universe around yourselves or if you're here with family members, it's around your family members and you come together and it pulls apart at different times. We have to understand that everybody sees something, lives something differently and that those that multiverse is essential. And then it's about the narrative. I think a lot about this, too, in the context of the long war. What is it that people will be taught in schools five years from now around the world about what transpired over the last five years? Whoever writes that narrative will probably decide, will play a big role on whether the war is 100 months long at that point or 100 years long. This narrative will become essential. And how will those stories be handed down family to family, neighborhood to neighborhood, generation to generation? This narrative is essential. And how will that story be told in movies, which, after all, are our tools of time? It's about networks and it's about the narrative. And then uh, I th come back to my concern about the crossroads the country's in and so I took a little bit from Robert Frost's Two Paths. And I wonder if we could think about this from the nation's perspective. And I, too, will be telling this with a sigh, that somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by. And as the political discourse in the nation polarizes even more, that road that's less traveled by, which is maybe the one of civilized discourse, that's the one that will make all the difference. And it will make the difference over months, over years, and over the ages Robert Frost described. So thank you very much for having me. I promised Stuart that I'd actually leave time for questions and also for answers. So thank you very much. And Stuart, I don't, you come up here now, I guess.
You're fast, John. Thank you. That was one of the briefest, most succinct talks we've had here, which is great because it gives us lots of time to uh, to wade into questions. And uh, Kevin is going to bring up some while I uh, fake around up here. Um, one thing we were talking about backstage was you mentioned that you don't read American media or view American media very much anymore. You, you want to say what that's about? I, uh, to the extent that, that I have read it and see television, which is a short period of time, um, I get concerned that the media in the United States is absent context and perspective, that it's a rush to news. It's more important to be first than to be right. And I think that's a, a very serious problem. I disclosed earlier that I do on-camera work from time to time. It's been a little bit since I've been on, on BBC. But what's, what's always struck me interesting on BBC is that for BBC, their news, they order the news in order of importance. And everybody will say, well, that's what they do in the United States as well. But they'll open up the first story for the length to be able to get in divergent views. And for them, they don't consider their newscaster or the correspondent's talent. They consider them journalists. And so there are times when you have really significant stories, whether it was Sarajevo or Pristina, where out of their 30-minute newscast, they would give up 20, 21, 22, 23 minutes to the story to be able to talk about different things. And on most U.S. networks, you can't get beyond two minutes. And some of these stories are so complex and have so much behind them that it's important to get more than two minutes of news. And so we don't do that. And you watch foreign media, it sounds like, uh, professionally. Is that something that people on the Internet can do close to as well as uh, the Rendon Group does? Well, I mean, the business answer to that is no, but the, the reality is probably yes. Um, <laughs> I, I think, um, well, I, pl I plugged BBC, so enough with that. It would depend on the area that you're interested they're really different segments of time that become important. There is a real-time environment, which is the quick term. This is what's going on right now. And in the course of real-time, in that space, we've been pioneers since the mid-'80s. Um, in the course of a year, we'll be able to see things and actually beat CNN as a standard um, 2,500 times a year in terms of stories that we see globally that have the potential um, to break out of the box um, that's a different kind of environment. That's much harder to do. The near real-time environment, which is an ability to get information that is nested, which for those, if there's anybody in the room from the news media or owns or operates the news media, is where I think it's going to go, is nested information. Um, then that's what individual citizens can do, and, and I would encourage them to do that. The risk and the polarized nature of the nation goes to the discourse um, which is almost like the Google Zone uh, video that was on the net, I don't know, six, seven years ago, I forget. Um, because people are only, the, my fear is that people will only go online to get news that reaffirms their belief sets. And what you really need to do is go, what one really needs to do is go online and see what's really out there, even if they're diametrically opposed, in order to find where the truth lies in this. Because it's really easy to feel good about yourself and your arguments, um, but it's harder to open up the aperture so you can see somebody else's point of view. 
This would strike me as a .org opportunity. Maybe it already exists and I haven't seen it. Uh, something that would uh, basically collect such a combination of sort of welcome and unwelcome stuff that you'd read it for the welcome stuff and then stay for the unwelcome stuff and uh, broaden. A um, couple of questions that kind of go to where the, your talk started. Uh, one from, uh, looks like Ricardo Imagon. Wave a hand if you want to indicate where you are. How do you tacitly explain still using the term war on terror without quotes? Do you believe the term still has relevance when even the White House is trying to retire the term out of embarrassment? Can you just repeat that? War on terror. Uh, you, you use it seriously as in the title. Um, is that still the best terminology? No. Great. What, would, what should we use? I don't, I don't know. I, I uh, had this conversation with the Brits about two weeks ago. Uh, I, I think all four words should be in play, including pronouns. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm open to suggestions on what to call it. It's hard. I, I think global makes sense because it's going on around the world. Um, a war probably, um, while there is combat operations occurring on a daily basis, I'm not sure war is the right way because it doesn't give a sense of longevity. Thought about the word campaign mm -hmm. because it's a long effort. Um, I think everybody's against terrorism, but everybody defines terrorism differently, and the perpetrators of terrorism are defined differently depending upon the people with whom you speak. And that's where it gets to be um, uh, complicated. Uh, so I'm open to suggestions. I mean, if anybody wants to send in suggestions. But it's also important to know that it's not my decision. <laughs> okay. Uh, one of the things I've been going around saying, just see what happens, is the war on terror is over. Um, uh, we lost. We've already spent a trillion dollars basically frightening ourselves to death, which we didn't have to do. Uh, they lost. By color. Uh, because quite a lot of Al-Qaeda. codes, actually. Yeah. Quite a lot of Al-Qaeda has been taken down. And the term war lost because it helped lead us into uh, probably a primrose path, to put it over mildly in Iraq. Uh, war is a term which itself was problematic, even though you, know, you have military people engaged. Yeah, yeah, come but, to, oh, can I sorry. just round that out for a second? Um, Go ahead. When, when I uh, met with people, uh, defense attaches actually from Europe, this was last fall, they made virtually um, the same points that you just did. But for them, the problem with the word war is it conjures up the political memories of World War One and World War Two, yeah. And it's a politically an anathema to them. And so they were uh, searching for alternative ways to describe that. Um, it's a problem. Um, a number of people recognize it. But like health care in the United States, a number of people recognize that's a problem. And yeah. nobody can sort of agree on the solution. Another issue I find with the problem is, is when you're in a war, absolutely everybody is engaged in it every day. And the problem with this so-called war is practically nobody is engaged in it every day. And so it doesn't feel right. It, everything is kind of skewed partly because of that. As we were saying backstage, the, the troops and their families know it's a war. But it's weird for them when they come back and they find a country that is not in the same war they are. Um, so back to this, Dean Coley, wave a hand if you want, says, um, whatever we call it, uh, how do you know when you've won? Yeah, that's a real problem. When, uh, is, when you, is this thing over? Well, that's why I think it's a long war. 
Um, it, it's easy in conventional uh, operations to decide who wins and who loses. Uh, this is an asymmetric activity, and it's hard to have that definition. Um, I think the original construct uh, in 2001 was publicly known as 2 plus 7, which was bin Laden and Mullah Omar in the circle, 7 on the, out, the next circle out, um, uh, all of whom have been killed or captured. But just like you said, I mean, they've changed, too. They've adapted. They've morphed. Uh, there are proxies. And therein lies the problem. There, there are people still attacking. Um, and it's hard to define um, the terms of that victory, how you can tell you're going to win, which is what makes the use of the word war problematic yeah. uh, in that construct. Exactly. Uh, here's a question from Danny Hillis in the front. This is going to something you raised at the very beginning. What do you think is the root cause of the polarization of politics that you described in your introduction? Um, I don't know. We, we, actually, you and I talked about that also before. Uh, yeah, uh, I wanted to blame Newt Gingrich, and you said no. Yeah, no, I, I don't. Um, I, I don't blame the former speaker. I, I, I'm sort of struck. Uh, I remembered it a little bit differently. Um, I actually remember a speech President Carter gave in the 1980 general election, where he expressed his concern that the debate in the United States was dividing black from white, rich from poor, Christian from Jew, and that that would happen uh, if Ronald Reagan got elected. Um, so I don't know when it started. I, I know that as a political tactic, wearing a hat from probably 1,500 years ago when I worked elections in the United States, it became evident that in the mid-'70s, um, that there was a tactic or a strategy that was using tactics to depress turnout as a function of negative campaigning. And the emergence of negative campaigning did uh, had some unintended consequences or intended consequences. I don't know. But I think they've remained true today that the consequences of negative campaigning is that the polarized elements of society feel stronger about who they are and the people in the middle. Um, don't believe that the government represents them or the campaigns represent them. And so they choose not to participate and they tune out. Um, and that reduces participation. That participation allows the polarized elements to succeed. Uh, and I think that's a threat to the country. Uh, question here on. This is from Steve Wolrob. To what extent. Have you questioned your own assumptions about who and what was behind 9-11 and the war on terror? Um, boy, that's a really good question. Um, it should also say how often. Um, I'll, I'll make it gen more general. What interesting things you found you've been wrong about in recent years? <laughs> I can do that. Um, I mean, I, well, there are a couple of things that I do regularly. Um, one, uh, I go back and I, I look at the recruit and maintain a coalition, counter deter and defeat an enemy, support the warfighter, um, degrade the recruitment or enlistment of potential terrorists. And I, I, on a regular basis, look and try to assess how well um, the coalition is doing in that space. 
On the assumptions of 9-11, I, I don't do that as often as that, but I do it regularly, and I, and I try to turn it around from another perspective. I look at how uh, the United States is operating, not as a government, but as a nation. And I wonder uh, what happens in different places around the world. Because of the shift of resources to conduct combat operations, which is hugely expensive, the United States stopped doing a number of things in a number of countries, and so vacuums were created. Other people have stepped into those vacuums, so that if you're going to take a look and ask who's behind any kind of activity or what's going on, you'd always have to ask yourself who benefits from that. And I think that it's important to look at the assumptions on 9-11 to see if there was somebody else playing on the stage that we can't see that is here. Um, but, but I don't have any conclusions on that. I just continue to ask the question. Okay. Same question, different answers. Any other interesting changes of mind? On that? On, on any of the stuff you've been dealing with the last few years. I mean, we both have encountered elected officials who basically are thinking whatever they thought back in Seattle before they got elected. And, uh, you know, sometimes their staffs keep up, but changes of mind when in a power position are relatively rare because everybody's day is full and they're playing out whatever theory of the world they have. So they count on people like you and others that are hired, like me, I suppose, to think through what are some changes of either frame or actual 180 perspective change that is worth having. And we do that best when we notice it in ourselves. And there's serious stuff I've been wrong about. I could go on for an hour. Uh, you know, how do we get that frame of mind into the power positions? I, I think um, this tyranny of real time that uh, Nick Gowing wrote about 10 years ago, it's a good paper. If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to take a look at it. He wrote it around uh, the experience in Bosnia. This tyranny of real time, uh, information and the decision cycle, has I mean, the, the velocity and acceleration has increased beyond comprehension. And so I, I think that the best counsel I would give anyone and continue to give them is we have to find a way to slow time down in order to bring in enough information so that the decisions that are made and the strategies that are developed are informed um, and are uh, uh, can be accomplished in a timely fashion. This notion that we have to do something immediately um, is when we, we find ourselves to be most vulnerable, uh, particularly the U.S. government, I think, because it remains, as I said in my talk, an industrial age structure and an information age environment. So the quicker the, the timing cycle the more the government can find a way not to act, mm -hmm. which is different than slowing time down. You have to slow down to be able to see enough things. Okay. A couple questions on credibility. Um, Jeff Yanker uh, puts it cleanest, says, why do you think we have a credibility gap? Then Carol Brouillet, who's a congressional candidate, says the U.S. government has lost credibility uh, in the world, most people believe Bush Cheney to be criminals. Could the U.S. redeem itself in the eyes of the world by impeaching Bush Cheney and changing U.S.'s destructive global domination policy? And Joe Rutt, it looks like, says, wouldn't the best and most ethical way for the U.S. to overcome a credibility deficit to become more credible? In the context of that question, here's the stinger. Can you speak to your own company's perceived role spreading disinformation?
Yes, yes, no, yes, yes, no, yes. Next question. Um, the, the, the challenge in credibility, and the reason I told the, the Clinton story from Russia is that you, you can't spin your way out of a bad fact situation. Mm-hmm. If, if credibility is important, then credibility is important because you're going to do what you're going to say, what you say. And right, thank you. People understand that. But the actions of a government, whether it's the United States government or other governments, has to be rooted in a moral authority. Um, and that raises all sorts of uh, different implications. Uh, the credibility issue that the United States government has had, and th- this is where context and perspective are important, um, and, and where the discourse really should take into account a little bit of history. While the credibility of the U.S. government continues to decline, it's important to realize that it's been declining for a while, not just through one administration. Mm-hmm. Um, and that goes to the fact that the United States stakes out positions um, that are probably inconsistent with the populations or the street um, in a number of the countries. Therein lies that problem. Um, with respect to uh, the, the last question of the sequence, mm-hmm. um, can I speak to the credibility of my organization? Yes. I mean, those that know us know that we strongly believe and have always believed in timely, truthful and accurate information. Never said anything different. Have always made that argument to policymakers um, who establish policy. We don't. Uh, we've made the argument to the public affairs community when they communicate. And we made the argument to the psychological operations community when they communicate. We make that argument to the information operations community when they communicate. Um, but, you know, there will always be stories that will be out there about people. Uh, and some will be true and some won't. Uh, and... That's just the nature of the digital age. Uh, well, there's a question related to that. Um, of course. Jeremy Pepper for O'Dwyer's. O'Dwyer, is this a, an ad? Oh, or no, actually, it's a public relations publication. Right. Brilliant. Thank you. Okay. Um, you have been relatively quiet since the Rolling Stone article. This was James Bamford's article called The Man Who Sold the War and tend to be behind the scenes. Why speak now and why to this audience? And there's a thanks, which I think is thanks for being here. Um, I've been relatively quiet. <laughs> um, no, I, I uh, well, as I mentioned at the start of the talk, um, it's not been relatively quiet since, since James Bamford's piece. I think he's a brilliant author, by the way. I should just tell you that. But... Um, he doesn't always get everything right either. But uh, I, I came here to have this conversation first because it's, it's what I said at the start of the talk. The only organization, only group, continuing conversation that's taking the long view at everything or at anything, as I said in the beginning. And I think that's important if we're going to truly understand the nature of the conflict in which the country finds itself. Um, then we have to start taking longer and longer views of time and of history, uh, of opportunities and of threats. And if my presence can produce um, a little bit of debate, dialogue or discourse on that subject, um, then it's a helpful and useful amount of time. 
I've got a couple of specific follow-up questions, uh, two from David Martinez. One I'm going to pass on from a fellow who wrote me, uh, Mr. Chatterjee. Martinez, question. What was your role in setting up the Iraqi National Congress? What do you now think of Ahmed Chalabi and uh, Judith Miller? Two, what was Paul Moran's role in helping the U.S. military and or the CIA? And Mr. Chatterjee's question is, were you involved in Jessica Link or Lynch or Saddam uh, statue toppling events? Um, I'm going to separate the two um, because it's important to do that. On, on the Jessica Lynch thing, absolutely nothing to do with it. Um, Why do you think the word first went out from military people that she, you know, was uh, heroic and everything? They just do that routinely or what? I'm sorry? Remember the word went out at first that she was uh, fighting, fighting heroically before she was captured and all that stuff. Same thing with Pat Tillerman. Where do these things come from in the military? I have no idea where yeah. that came from. I mean, we, we uh, I remember... Uh, the day of the convoy being attacked and there was a lot of confusion and, and what the military says is that all reports um, change as a result of contact with the enemies, you know, mm -hmm. um, and we, we were monitoring open source information related to that attack, which included Al Jazeera television, um, trying to get some sense of what was going on and uh, fighting heroically. I have no idea. I've never walked that back. I mean, because at that period of time, our participation with respect to Iraq was monitoring international news media. I mean, that's what that was. Let, let me go to the, the um, uh, and I'm not sure you're going to like the answer, but uh, let me go to the INC and the questions associated with that, which are also one of the tenets of the Bamford piece. Um, there is work that we do that is classified. Um, and I'm not going to talk about that work here or in other places because I don't think ethics are a thing of convenience. I think ethics matter. I think if you take an oath, it's got to matter. Um, and with respect to anything associated with that, I can't talk about it, even if the news media happens to get it right or get it wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, what's your migrating opinion of uh, Chalabi? I mean, I guess known him for a while, and he's gone through a lot of vicissitudes. Yeah, and, and um, my answer is going to be the same with respect to that. Mm -hmm. um, your opinions are classified? Huh? Your opinions personally are classified? Not today. You're not you're no, I'm just not, not going to answer that one. This is, you know, uh, okay to do. He's answering a lot here. Uh, more generically, this is a question from Kevin Kelly, who moved it right to the top of the stack. Is a uh, democratic government ever justified, either by war or emergency, to deceive the public? Are there some kinds of wars where misleading the public is needed? How does the government prevent itself from deceiving itself? Um, that's a really good question. <laughs> Um, I, I think the more we get into a connected world, the more we get into a global information environment, um, the harder the, and harder it gets for any kind of deception to get traction. Uh, that what you have is a lot of people operating, you know, we, we almost have a, a ubiquitous, transparent environment. And so it would be hard to get away with something like that. 
Um, should a government be able to deceive its population? It depends on the stake, actually. Uh, not many people are going to like the answer. But you had the question um, that they always come back to, which I think Anthony K. Brown's description in World War II of having broken the codes that the Nazis were using. They allowed um, the Germans to bomb. Um, I think it was Coventry, if I remember correctly, and not stop it for fear of losing the capability. Um, uh, the Brits will even tell you today that their most successful deception operation in World War II um, dealt with shifting uh, Nazi uh, military uh, assets off of Cyprus uh, and away from a pretending attack, potential or, or pending attack um, in uh, in Europe. Uh, and I think that was the the body of a man that never existed or whatever that was. Um, the problem without having a, this is why you really do, one really does need um, competing uh, intelligence sources, and that's to create enough flow of information where one can get a better sense of everything that's going on. The risk is, you know, the risk is if the government becomes uh, self-reinforcing, where it only wants to see its view and doesn't want to allow disparate views in. It's important to have the use in, even if you don't agree with them. How do you uh, break that cycle when it's happening? Because you must have seen it happen. I've seen it happen. Well, you know, you raise your hand and you say, yeah, I think you're wrong. You know, at some point, somebody <laughs> stops you're not inviting invited you to the, the meeting. Next meeting. So how does that work? Um, I don't know. You know, there's a lot of frustration in the government, not just with the government about this. Um, People who've worked in the government for years um, can be frustrated about the absence of an ability to have that kind of exchange. Um, but, but I don't have a solution to that other than to say you have to allow the disparate views in. And it could very well be that the solution set for that comes not inside the U.S. government, but to the U.S. government from coalition partners. And that, in fact, coalitions, which tend to see things differently than the United States, should be allowed to have a fraternal seat at the table and not a paternal existence with us. We go back around to the importance of coalitions. That sounds right. Well, let me go a little deeper on that one, because um, I was sort of introduced to this subject by my old mentor, Gregory Bateson, who was an anthropologist who uh, had a role in World War II with his wife, Margaret Mead. As he said, the uh, first thing you do in a war is line up all the liberals and point them at the enemy. And uh, he and his wife, Margaret, were pointed by Roosevelt's White House at uh, both Germany and Japan, and first, they were involved in helping Americans understand Brits so we'd be good allies. And then Gregory was in the South Pacific with the OSS, pre-CIA thing, doing black radio. And black radio, uh, I don't know if he devised it, but he was helping make it happen, was radio broadcast in Japanese as if by the Japanese colonial powers that exaggerated uh, in a really unpleasant way, everything that the Japanese were actually saying. So they just basically said uh, the stuff and then cubed it and put it in such a way that the Japanese could never deny it because it was in line with what they were saying. But it was so repulsive that, of course, people who heard it would not want anything to do with this new empire. Like Fox News. Say again? Fox News. Like Fox News, says Danny Hills. <laughs> Less profitable, perhaps. Uh, it did no advertising revenue worth mentioning. 
But this kind of disinformation is standard. I mean, Sun Tzu is full of it and so on, that you, you, you are always trying to keep the enemy off balance and yourself from going off balance. But in the long war that you just described, where credibility is of the essence, and you can't always sort out who's going to be a terrorist from who's going to be an ally, and so you can't target the way you could in, say, World War II, quote, uh, the enemy against those that they were trying to uh, take over. Does that kind of, is, is this fundamentally a different game and the role of deception in this quasi-military, intelligence-rich domain, is it different now? And are we catching up with how different it is yet? The, the um, you know, I was thinking about the radio, but then also thinking about ubiquitous transparency. I, I think if anybody stood up a, um, a black radio operator, and that's the characterization for those that don't know, it's black, gray, and white. Um, but but if anybody stood that kind of activity up now, I, I think enough people would point out that it didn't make any sense where it came from, and it would probably take about 72 hours before it would no longer have any credibility. So I, I don't think that that can happen anymore. Mm-hmm. I think there are probably uh, fundamentally different tools that, that are needed in the nature of that. Um, we were talking a little bit about Lebanon backstage, which is the breaking news right now. What's your perception on uh, the gravity of that? Well, sort of been out of touch uh, most of the day. My, my guess is, uh, it'll be interesting to see if this is a news report, so there are probably about... 15 or 20,000 uh, American citizens in Lebanon. Um, and my instinct is that, that there's probably a plan or somebody should be planning now for evacuation or at least protection of American citizens. Is that right? When did it get there? In March? No. <laughs> okay. All right. So, I, yeah. The USS Iowa is there, and they're conducting evacuation operations now of U.S. citizens, American citizens. Okay, right. Uh, I don't have enough flow of information to give you a sense of what I think is going on there, but I can tell you that what usually happens in a con- an, emergent, an emergent and immediate conflict situation is that the countries that tend to have the most citizens present have plans that they pull off the bookshelf. One second. For the different people that are there, and then they try to get their own nationals out because the responsibility of its government is first to its own people. So, for example, in... Uh, I think in uh, Ivory Coast a year or so ago, when there were really serious problems, the French led the emergency uh, evacuation operations and allowed other countries to come in. Um, but in terms of what's going on on the ground there, I, I just I don't have any visibility on it. All right. Coming back to a, a general point from Rocky, uh, how do we educate others when their governments when their government's stability depends on portraying us as the enemy? Well, I, that would go to my point, I think, um, about the importance of increased connectivity and developing relationships, the National Endowments of Education and of Healthcare, 
and the role, I think, that the American people need to play in this. Um, Ricardo, American again, got another card. Uh, you mentioned that you think competing intelligence agencies are positive. Does this mean you think that the consolidation of agencies under one aegis, uh, as the White House is trying to do, is a bad move? Uh, too early to tell whether it's a bad move or not. Whether, uh, And I think it'll be a while before people know. And what would be the signs it's a bad move? Well, I mean, obviously, mistakes. <laughs> More mistakes. <right? laughs> Plan B. Hmm, this is interesting. Stuart Candy, who's an uh, intern working at the Long Now Foundation, says, how far into the future do you have to look before the concept of American national interest, or indeed any national interest, evaporates into absurdity? Can we govern for that time frame? In other words, sure. one of the things that uh, I think we were saying is that Politics absolutely engrosses us in the moment, and there's a lot of division, political division in the U.S. But as, as you expand your time frame, politics sort of becomes noise, and the other structure emerges. And so this question is, in a sense, what's the, how does one engage the time frame at which uh, engrossing national interest uh, drops into something stronger and bigger? Um, this, this goes, um, again, to the, the threat of the dynamic of the, the tyranny of real time. If all we handle is the next news cycle, then we really create a dynamic in which everybody's looking at their feet, nobody's looking at the horizon. And if you, you have to look at the horizon in order to put some things into play that could be harvested or beneficial later on, uh, and then that increases the amount of opportunities policymakers have, operators have, down the road, if all we do is just feed the daily news cycle and that crunch, then it's limited opportunities. You have a chance to succeed if you think long rather than just playing short. Um, what that time horizon is, how far out can you look and be realistic? I don't know. My guess is, is I would start with a 20-year timeline hmm. uh, and then work back from that. Hmm. But I, I would, I'd probably adjust it um, every year. Uh, and then if you think about it from a government standpoint, the U.S. government budget cycle is one year. So if you're really going to think in the, the construct cycle of two a long years. effort, then you have to fund things that will go on for a long time. But, I mean, okay, the budget cycle is one year. The voting cycle is two years in Congress. The polling cycle is one day at its longest. Uh, what, and those are all very powerful. That is, people respond to them with real behavior. What might engage somehow balance that, I mean, adaptivity calls for that kind of fast response. That's great, but how do you balance it with something else? Yeah, um, you, you want a government to be accountable to its people, so you don't want to change the timing cycle of elections. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to find a way to set in motion a series of practices or procedures that will enable people to take some issues a little bit longer than two years or one year on a budget cycle. Um, in theory, that really was bipartisan approaches mm -hmm. to fundamentally large issues, you mm -hmm. know, whether it was the space program or, or the Cold War. Um, and th the days of when the dynamic tension of polar opposites in the Congress yielded in legislation that was in the best interest of the nation 
the Kennedy Goldwater dynamic um, rather so than the dynamic tension of polar opposites creating more and more tension and less and less discourse. So part of the cure might be getting some kind of bipartisan projects that have this long term time frame that people are comfortable with. And then that becomes a, a standard enough so that other things can be spoken of in its time frame. Yeah, I think that's probably right. You know, and then borrowing a line from the Congress, heaven forbid, reserving the right to revise and extend my remarks. I would tell you that it probably would make sense, given your construct, to start with people who were retired rather than those that were active mm -hmm. and let it work itself institutionally back from those that had been there. Now, here's a question from Roger David, uh, which goes to a um, question of agenda. Uh, it seems that many of us, to many of us, that the war on terror is not the real agenda. It might be power, it might be wealth, it might be oil, some kind of geopolitical control. Um, my sense is that the, there's a double confusion here. One is, uh, is there an agenda? Uh, and two, is it one which we can know and participate in? Is there one which is disreputable and therefore it isn't shared because uh, it won't be supported? In other, what's the agenda of current uh, activities related to Iraq and, and the so-called war on terror? Um, I'm not sure where to go with that question. Um, the, the reality is that soldiers are fighting and dying over there. Um, as they are in Afghanistan and other places. Um, as for any agenda, I mean, from the from think the commanders or the troops standpoint, you know, theirs are to achieve their mission. All right. Uh, they don't see agendas. You know, they see their missions day in and day out. I know, but, but I'm, I'm, well, I'm not, I'm, yeah, I, I said in, in the beginning, these are my personal observations. I'm, I'm not here representing the government. The, the two words that are actually correct in this case are national security. Um, U.S. was attacked. Bullshit. Oh, it didn't happen. Well. It's an inside job. <laughs> you heard it here, John. <laughs> Thank you for making the point that this is indeed a disputatious time and set of issues, and, and that's indeed why we're here. We've got some specifics here, one from Brent Ross. What, in your view, is the source of the emboldened attitudes of leaders in North Korea and Iran? Uh, was Iran headed for a more moderate regime before we invaded Iraq, do you think? Um. I think uh, personal observation of North Korea is that it's just an entirely different environment. Uh, they see things differently than, than uh, I, I've never been there, have not met with them. Do you have uh, any sense of public opinion in North Korea at all? No, none at all. I, I've talked to people who have gone there for meetings to try to get some sense, and, and their view of what's going on in the rest of the world is just dramatically different than everybody else's view. Mm -hmm. 
that's perfectly acceptable in a normal course of a year that two or three members of somebody's extended family will die from starvation. That's just normal. So they don't see that as an abnormal activity. We find it to be uh, wrong. Um, with respect to Iran, it's a, it's a really interesting construct of whether um, a more moderate regime would have been elected had we not been in Iraq. I, I don't have any data to that um, to know whether that would be true or not. Um, there is an increasing, at least in the open source environment, um, almost as if North Korea and Iran are playing off of each other, but not with each other. Hmm. So they watch how one country emerges and does something and then they learn from that and the other country does something. They go back and forth. But they've spread that out over a long enough period of time. Um, and, and actually, uh, some French journalists pointed out how they saw that going back and forth. When that's going on, how do we interrupt that cycle? Well, there are other people that are playing uh, into that as well. I mean, the Europeans have a very big stake in that. Uh, and so it, it's not just us versus those two countries. There are a lot of other countries that feel strongly about it, and they're engaged in that as well. A um, couple of questions here out in Afghanistan. Maybe the easiest thing would just be to ask, what's your perception of the state of things and the likely sequence of events in Afghanistan? Um, uh, Afghanistan continues to progress. Uh, more and more children are going to school. Get a sense of that when one is there. Um, the violence in Afghanistan tends to be located in the drug-producing provinces. Um, the open-source polling uh, in Afghanistan remains positive. Uh, no interest in the Taliban coming back. Taliban support levels are in single digits uh, from Afghans, uh, with the exception of the three southern provinces where they're in the teens. So it's not mm -hmm. overwhelming numbers. Is there a trend in that, up or down? Uh, it, it sort of stayed constant over the last two or three years, uh, even though the violence in the country has increased. Mm -hmm. uh, so the specific question that from Brian Good is, given the likelihood that profits from the resurgent Afghan opium trade are going to al-Qaeda, why is this issue so obscure in public policy discussion? Why is it what? So obscure in public policy discussion, the whole uh, uh, opium trade question? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's significant. Uh, a number of countries have continued to raise that in their own media, that the importance of paying attention to it. So I don't know why it's not there. Okay, a couple more. Uh, J.D. Ross Leahy says, what do you mean by open source? Okay, open source media distinguished from open source code. Um, Open source media is anything that is published, uh, printed, appears on, on television or radio, generated by a news organization. Uh, and that's open source media. Um, from Sam, why is it that military recruitment in the U.S. has declined, whereas recruitment of insurgents uh, in Iraq has increased? Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure either one of those assumptions is accurate. Um, mm -hmm. I remember, uh, of course you'd expect me to say that, um, but I remember seeing numbers uh, in a story this week uh, where uh, recruitment levels in the U.S. Army in particular uh, had exceeded expectations. Mm 
uh, and that the other services had met their goals. Oh, is that okay? Uh, okay. I, I don't work retention or recruitment, so I don't. They're taking neo Nazis. No, no. Something that is um, part of the one of the many divisions going on in the U.S. I used to be in the Army. I was an infantry lieutenant and taught basic training just before Vietnam. Some of the troops I trained probably went there. I was an airborne and jumped out of airplanes. And um, I was in the Army because I was in ROTC at Stanford. Stanford doesn't have ROTC anymore. Uh, neither do any of the IVs. And one of the byproducts of the Vietnam War was basically uh, various student activities chased ROTC off the northern campuses. And where they went is to the Southern Christian Colleges. I heard this from Wes Clark a couple months back, back when he was running for president. And so for the first time, you have a uh, junior officer corps, which is um, not urban, not highly educated, uh, pretty seriously Christian, and um, of a different political stamp than we used to have. The other thing going on, and has always been the case, is the military is largely made up from people from rural areas, not from the cities. We had our first San Franciscan die in Iraq this month. And so there's a a division that occurs between rural sensibility and and urban sensibility. Rural people are feeling this war personally much more than city people are. And how that will play out politically, I have no idea because those are, you know, in many cases, red states. But it is, uh, well, I felt when I was in the military that the division between the civilian life and military life was um, way too great. And that, you know, part of the broad education, everybody being aware of each other's realities that you talk about, this is another thing which uh, we as civilians can help engage for example, um, a good, interesting movie that's just out there now is called The War Tapes, where you see a bunch of National Guard guys from, I think, New York State going on the first tour to Iraq. And uh, bear in mind, a lot of soldiers are up to their fourth tour now. And the thing that struck me as a former uh, regular Army guy was how untrained these weekend warriors war to be sent into a ferociously real military environment. And they did pretty well considering. And they got uh, seriously fucked up, as happens under this, especially this kind of war where you never know who the enemy is. And when the reserves and National Guard come back to the U.S., unlike regular army, all of whom get counseling now, so nobody feels bad about getting counseling, None of the reserves in National Guard get counseling. They are back in their families suddenly. They look around, and the town they're in uh, doesn't know about the war. Welcomes them home, big parade, but that's pretty much the end of it. There's uh, some good bonding going on between the Vietnam vets, who went through another version of this, and the Iraq War vets. But it's also something that I think we could engage. I'm sorry I'm giving a little speech here, but I'm curious what you think of that, John. Talk about what? 
Uh, sure, yeah. Admiral Stockdale just died. He was the guy who was tortured and kept from telling that nothing actually happened in the Gulf of Tonkin. But... Okay. You're looking at me with wonder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> uh, you deal with military a lot. What's your perception on this civilian military thing? I, I, I think... Um... I think there's several aspects to it um, that, that are important. And part of it goes to troop rotations and part of it goes to preparation. Um, and then uh, part of it goes to the practices or procedures when uh, forces cycle home. The larger issue with respect to the, how the U.S. government functions is that, as I mentioned in the talk, the industrial age structure, but... Here's the dynamic. If you've got forces that are deployed or people that work in embassies or people that do different jobs and they cycle out, whether they are active duty, uh, reserve or guard or in the civilian side of the government. The old industrial age structure said, OK, you move on to your next post. And so what happens is you tend to lose the experience and expertise of the people that were there. People come back in and they start at zero. So I think about that um, in the context of forces that get deployed to combat environments uh, like Iraq or Afghanistan and someplace in, in Baghdad, probably right now, which is I don't know, sometime in the morning, I guess, um, time wise, uh, there's a patrol on the street and somebody will start yelling at the patrol or something. And then the question is, what is the young lieutenant leading that patrol going to do? The chances are that, that she can talk to her captain and figure out what to do in that situation. But probably they all went there at the same time. And if there was a way that she could have ahead of time talked to the person who led that patrol for the previous half year or whole year to realize that the person yelling, you know, yells every day about anything or everything and that you can quiet them down by talking to their sister, you know, or their cousin or their uncle that lives on that street. It's losing that sense because, you know, some of the forces that rotate are underlapped. They're not overlapped. Even if you're overlapped, it's probably not a long period of time. Mm -hmm. um, but then the same thing is true in the embassies. It's, it's as if we haven't made any functional changes to accommodate the nature of this. The government continues to do business as usual. Now, much to, I think, uh, Secretary Rice's credit, she's begun to take a hard look at embassies in Europe and staffing patterns and wondering why some of the European embassies are so large and shouldn't that per those personnel there get relocated, develop uh, expertise uh, in Arab countries, Arab language skills and, and recycle because the construct of the embassies is a post-World War II Cold War environment. And, She's the first one to have looked at the size of the embassies against the nature, you know, of the conflict. In terms of forces coming home, um, it, it's something that we shouldn't lose sight of. Uh, and they need to be treated correctly and they shouldn't be left alone. And there shouldn't be a difference between active duty and guard and reserve. Uh, and the fact that, that some of the people that were active in the Vietnam veterans movement have tied up with them is, is probably a really excellent thing. Uh, general question, and we can finish with from Phil Bush. In the long, long sense, does your belief of the nature of man include the possibility of world peace? Yeah, I, I actually do. I'm, I'm an optimist in that sense. 
um, despite the fact that nobody here tonight will believe that. <laughs> um, I do think that there is a possibility to uh, probably see an end to the conflict as we know it today, although the earlier question about how do you define victory looms large in that construct. If we don't start thinking long, maybe this is a good way to end, if we don't start thinking long and we keep fighting in these shorter and shorter timing cycles, um, the war doesn't end. If we do think long and put some of these things into practice, and I'm sure that people in the audience here in this room and then probably online have a number of ideas what can be done in the role American people can play in it. If we start putting some of those ideas into motion and we really do start playing long at the same time we're playing short, thinking long and acting long, it's probably possible to have the length of the conflict every year we play long. Mm -hmm. uh, and that would probably mean, since I've been telling people that I see it over 100 years now, that probably at the end of seven or eight years you'd have a dramatically different conflict. Um, but that requires people in this room, your audience around the country, to participate in it and not just observe it. So thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Okay.